You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this podcast, a recording from the second webinar organised as part of Framing Ageing, a clinical, cultural and social dialogue. Panel 3, Narrating Gender and Ageing, featured three speakers. The second speaker was Professor Anna Fuchs, Director of UCD Humanities Institute, who presented on The Inner Voice of Ageing Women, Elizabeth Strout's Olive Gittridge and Olive again. A video of the webinar, including the slides used by the speakers, is available on the project website, framingaging.ucd.ie, and on UCD Humanities Institute's YouTube channel. In uh, the following paper, I want to discuss episodes of incapacitation in Elizabeth Stroud's 2019 novel Olive Again, the sequel to Olive Kitteridge, which was published in 2008. Stroud's first novel is characterized by an ethnographic perspective which explores the aging experience in a small fictional town in Maine. By constantly shifting the narrative perspective from the protagonist onto other characters who inhabit the same community, Olive Kitteridge delves into the collective stigmatization of older women by means of the gendered and ageist youthful structure of the look, to use Kathleen Woodward's term. The later novel then shifts emphasis onto the difficult transition from the third age to the fourth age. Stroud's skillful point of view narration tracks the protagonist's emotional, physical and psychological adaptation to and acceptance of her dependency on others. Let me say a few words about how I intend to reframe aging in this paper. Adopting a largely post-humanist optic, I will attempt to show how Stroud's novel gestures towards an anti-ableist ethics and politics of relationality as an alternative to the prevailing model of successful aging, which we've already mentioned, as championed by the MacArthur Foundation and the United States and elsewhere. According to Sarah Lam and her co-authors, since the 1980s, successful aging has persisted as the dominant paradigm in gerontological research. The idea of successful aging challenged the decline model of aging by turning aging into a project of self-maintenance. The burgeoning popular literature in this field, and I've just made a, rare, a pretty uh, arbitrary selection, often adopts a step approach promising the extension of the third age or a return to an earlier biological stage by means of a biopsychological regime of discipline and action. Rowan Kahn provided the gerontological underpinning by defining successful aging along the following lines. To succeed in something requires more than falling into it. It means having desired it, planned it, worked for it. All these factors are critical to our view of aging, which even in this era of human genetics, we regard as largely under the control of the individual. In short, Successful aging is dependent on individual choices and effort. Evidently, the author's emphatic promotion of individual choice, agency, and responsibility 
reveals a neoliberal investment in the autonomous, resilient, and entrepreneurial self. The implied flip side of the successful aging model is, of course, the unpalatable idea of unsuccessful aging. So what is unsuccessful aging? It captures the individual's failure to manage the maintenance of their bodily and mental capacities. Marked by high dependency and economic costs, unsuccessful aging connotes an incapacitated life that has been rendered unproductive and as such worthless at the threshold of death. By turning aging into a project for the empowered individual rather than for society as a whole, the successful aging model replicates the neoliberal equation of the value of life with agency, cognition, and purpose. It also supports the exponentially growing market of costly and privatized regenerative medicine and technology while strategically downplaying ethnicity, gender, class, and income as significant factors influencing access to good aging. As Sparage and Martison have pointed out, the age, this aging model is a classic example of ableism, which they define as, I quote, discrimination and prejudice against people with disabilities based on the assumptions of inferiority, abnormality, or diminished humanity rather than understanding disability as a dimension of difference or another way for a body and mind to be. In order to mobilize an anti-ableist position against this paradigm, I want to draw on the disability scholar Yun Jung Kim's article on unbecoming human, which explores the possibility of a non-anthropocentric ethics that overcomes the exclusionary configurations of humanity probing the very conditions attached to the notion of humanness, Kim challenges the ableist grounds for exclusion based on capability, rehabilitation, and productivity. Instead, Kim suggests that unbecoming human by embodying objecthood, surrendering agency, and practicing powerlessness may open up an anti-ableism, anti-violence, queer ethics of proximity that reveals the workings of the boundary of the human. She further argues that the moments of object becoming yield an opportunity, one that is perhaps counterintuitive yet potentially generative, to fashion an ethics of non-purposive existence. For Kim then, the aim of such an inhumanist vision is not merely a more inclusive understanding of humanness, but the disavowal of declarations of value of life. Now I'm going to turn to Elizabeth Strauss' novel, uh, Olive Again, which contains a series of highly charged moments of bodily objectification in which the protagonists surrender their agency and subject identities. A rather witty example occurs when Olive is visiting Jack during their courtship period. As Jack is telling Olive about his estrangement from his lesbian daughter, he's looking down at his socks, I quote, which made Olive look down at them as well, and she was surprised to see his toe sticking out of a hole in one. His toenail needed to be cut. God, that's unattractive, he said. Erotic titillation and phallic desire are replaced here by the objectified perception of a small but unduly obtrusive body part. Obviously, Jack's big toe sticking out of a hole in his sock is a comical symbol of diminished phallic power. 
the objectified perception of his unbecoming toe and nail stages a moment of unbecoming human in King's sense, which prepares the ground for a new form of intimacy based on a recognition of mutual need. Later on, the toenail scene is expanded when Jack finds Olive in the bedroom with tears running down her face because she can no, can no longer bend down to cut her toenails. I quote, she is too big and too old to get her feet close enough to her and she just hated, she just hated having her toenails so awful looking. For Olive, her awful looking toenails which are beyond her reach symbolize the progressive incapacitation of her body. Here, the moment of object becoming is encoded as utterly abject. However, when Jack takes her for a pedicure, Olive emerges with a smile on her face. I quote, she rubbed my calves, oh, it felt good, massage, that's the word, she massaged my calves, lovely, end of quote. The shared experience of anti-ableist care for the other then gives rise to a new choreography of intimacy which takes the place of heterosexual desire. And I'm just going to quote the end of this. The first months they had slept holding each other. Olive would put her leg over both his, she would, pet her, she would put her head on his chest, and during the night they would shift, but always they were holding each other, and Jack thought of their large bodies shipwrecked, thrown up upon the shore, and they held on for dear life. Jack's focalization of the image of their large shipwrecked bodies accentuates the extent to which Jack, the proverbial white Western male, has embraced the inhumanist vision of non-purposive life. While these scenes foreground shared moments of unbecoming human, my next example concerns the episode where Olive has a fall. It is a life-changing moment which signals the transition towards the fourth age and institutional care. It is triggered when Olive finds a cigarette butt on the porch of her house and tries to pick it up. Stroud's point of view narration is extremely detailed and alternates between Olive's perception of her immobilized body, which is exposed to the elements, and her fear of dying alone. Unable to lift herself up, she experiences her body as an alienated entity that she can no longer control. Linguistic instructions to herself are meant to regain bodily mastery, and that's the second paragraph in this long quote, which I will not read out. Eventually, she manages to hoist herself up by getting hold of a watering tap. And I will read this quote. Inch by half inch, Olive was able to move her body by thrusting it again and again until she could reach the spigot. She kept trying to reach the spigot and she kept falling short. But then she finally got her hand around it and by God, if it didn't help. It stayed steady, the spigot, and she was able by holding it to get herself to a sitting position and then she turned and knelt. And then she put her hands on the arms of the chair and she finally stood. Even though Olive eventually does manage to get herself off the ground, the fall episode marks a shift from the capacity-based definition of being human to a post-humanist understanding of entangled existence. From an intertextual angle, the description of Olive's physical incapacitation echoes Kafka's metamorphosis, seminal post-humanist text which delves into unbecoming human through the metamorphosis of the principal character into big bug. So let's have a look, a brief look at Gregor's struggles to get up. 
he would have needed arms and hands with which to get up, instead of which all he had were those numerous little legs forever in varied movement and evidently not under his control. If he wanted to bend one of them, then it was certain that that was the one that was next fully extended. And once he finally succeeded in performing whatever task he had set himself with that leg, then all its neglected fellows would be in a turmoil of painful agitation. Gregor's insect body has a life of its own. Once it is animated, it eschews discipline and governance. The uncontrollable movement of his numerous little legs, which have a mind of their own, not only annuls the hierarchy between mind and body, but it also dispels the fantasy of bodily integrity and coherence. Kafka's story responds to disastrous effects of the Cartesian conception of the subjects and the racialized modern biopolitics by means of the powerful image of the transformation of the Western male subject into vermin. That is a quote from the text. That is a form of life which, according to modern biopolitics, is useless and justifies containment and ultimately extermination. Stroud shares with Kafka an interest in the non-profitable body. And so it is that both Gregor Samsa and Olive Kitteritz experience a radical split between their cognitive function and the rebellious bodies which no longer obey the biopolitics of self-control. Both episodes not only unsettle the cultural association of embodiment with able-bodiedness, but they also challenge the very idea that dignity is a condition of humanness. Afterwards, Olive is, however, overcome by a consuming sense of Gothic terror in Jack's empty house. Everyday objects now exude an uncanny anisomy, which frightens Olive precisely because it unsettles the conventional divisions between life and death, dynamism and stasis, and mobility and immobility. Surrounded by a gaping bright universe of loneliness, she sees herself in the image of a mobile object whose wheels are falling off. I quote, she realized it was as though she had all her life four big wheels beneath her without ever knowing it, of course, and now they were all four of them wobbling and about to come off. She did not know who she was or what would happen to her. It is, of course, no coincidence that Olive conjures up the single most iconic image of 20th century speed politics and mobility, the motor car. While Filippo Marinetti's futurist manifesto celebrated the car crash as a supreme moment of liberating rupture, the wheels falling off Olive's aging body demarcate the end of the modern fantasy of progress, agency, and control over the future. In the light of these threatening experiences, Olive reluctantly acquiesces when her son signs her up for the Maple Tree residential care home without having consulted her. But Stroud's book ends on a positive note, with Olive writing her memoirs and striking up a friendship with Isabelle Dagner, a French-Canadian woman. The final lines point to an anti-ableist self-perception which is open to otherness, including the otherness of death. I quote, I do not have a clue who I have been. Truthfully, I do not understand a thing. Olive stuck her cane to the ground and hoisted herself up. It was time to go get Isabel for supper. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Framing Aging. For more information on the project 
and to access podcasts and videos from our events, check out the project website at framingaging.ucd.ie.